Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles, The Siege of Kazan of 1552, Part 3 of 3. In the previous two weeks, I have talked about the relationship between the Russians centred in Moscow, and the neighbours to the south and east in the 1400s and early 1500s. Those neighbours were the successor states of the once mighty Mongol Tatar Empire known as the Golden Horde, namely the Khanates of Kazan, Crimea, Siberia, the Great Horde and the Nogai Horde. These relationships were at least as important to Muscovy as those were their western neighbours. Last week I described the early years of Tsar Ivan IV of Muscovy, also known as Ivan the Terrible. Russia's main ambitions for expansion lay eastward, hoping to exploit the political weakness of the Khanate of Kazan on the river Volga. A simmering conflict between Muscovy and Kazan came to a head in the late 1540s. In the winters of 1547 to 1548 and 1549 to 1550, large Russian armies invaded Kazan. In both cases, however, unseasonably warm weather made it impossible to transport arms and supplies over melting ice and snow. Ivan, realising the importance of a forward base of operations, founded the fortress of Sviazhk in Cheremis territory on the Volga. The new town served both as a supply depot and a listening post, further tightening the noose around Kazan. Benson Bobrick, in his book Fearful Majesty, the Life and Reign of Ivan the Terrible, writes how Ivan deployed his main regiment to the east and south, the vanguard to the north and the rearguard and left wing to the west, and the right wing to the marshy ground south of the Kazanka River. In a speech to his officers, the Grand Prince promised to look after the families of all who were willing to lay their lives down for the faith. He also reminded them of their Christian brethren who were still kept in bondage in the city of Kazan. The Russians began to build a network of trenches and earthworks to protect their infantry and set up their cannons. On the 25th of August, the first skirmish occurred when one regiment was attacked by Tatars who rushed from their city gates in a bold sortie. 
momentarily routed, the Russians regrouped and drove the enemy back. Unfortunately for the besiegers, the weather turned violent, and heavy rain deluged the encampment. Food and ammunition was lost, and high winds tore up soldiers' tents. At the same time, a Tartar cavalry unit, concealed in the nearby forests, ambushed Russian supply lines, in charges coordinated with sorties from Kazan by signals from towers. In response, a company of Russians were assembled to try and see off the threat. They attacked the Tartar unit, forcing them to flee back to their homes. In the meantime, as the siege started to drag on, Ivan looked increasingly to his miners to make a breakthrough. First they managed to bring down part of the city wall, where an underground passage provided fresh water from a spring. Next, two corner towers were undermined. Then, as September turned to October, it was necessary for the Russians to make one final push before winter arrived. On the 2nd of October, two huge blasts were made in the southern and eastern walls. The Russians forced their way through the breaches and threw themselves at the defenders. At first the Kazanis were routed from the walls and towers, and in desperate hand-to-hand fighting were forced to give ground. As the invaders however grew more confident, they turned to looting the city, giving the defenders a chance to regroup and make a counter-attack. Ivan IV sent the Russian cavalry elite into battle with orders to restore discipline by threatening with death anyone caught looting the city. This turned the tide of battle, and at length the Tatars saw that their cause was lost and tried to flee. Some managed to escape the carnage by crossing the river Kazanka to the forests and swamps beyond, but many of them were mercilessly hunted down and killed by the Russian light cavalry. The flower of the Tatar nobility perished on that fateful day. The Battle for Kazan became immortalised in the 1770s, when it became the subject of an epic novel in the tradition of Homer and Virgil, named the Rossiada. The Rossiada is the longest poem in the Russian language, except for a work by the same author, Mikhail Kursakov, named Vladimir Reborn, concerned with the baptism of Vladimir the Great in 988. On October the 4th, Ivan IV made a solemn ceremonial entry into Kazan, where he selected a site for the city's first Christian cathedral and laid its foundation stone. He did not stay long in the city, however, soon departing for Moscow, but he did leave behind a major military presence in Kazan. On his return journey, he was overjoyed to hear news that his wife, Anastasia, had given birth to a son, and on his arrival back in Moscow, he was greeted as a conquering hero by the entire city. In his address to his people, Ivan thanked God and quoted Job and Isaiah in comparing the recent Tatar captivity of the Russians to the Babylonians and Egyptian captivity of the Hebrews. And to his list of titles, he added Emperor of the Bulgars. Like the Ottoman Sultan, Mehmet the Conqueror, a century before, Ivan IV achieved at a young age the capture of a major city with great repercussions for the future of his realm. Unlike Mehmet, Ivan's ambitions were in no way sated. He planned to use the victory at Kazan as a launch pad for yet further conquests. A memorial believed to commemorate Ivan's victory at Kazan is a religious icon, four metres long, known as either the Church Militant or the Blessed Host of the Tsar of Heaven. 
The icon shows Ivan as he follows the Archangel Michael, leading the triumphant Russian troops away from the conquered city in flames. In the top left corner of the icon, the Mother of God with the infant Jesus is shown seated outside the heavenly gate of Jerusalem, symbolising the city of Moscow and distributing crowns to messenger angels who proceed to reward the martyrs of Ivan's army. It was placed opposite the Tsar's throne in the Cathedral of the Domitian in the Kremlin, but is today on display in the Tretiakov Gallery in Moscow. Another more famous memorial to the Siege of Kazan is perhaps the most famous building of all in Russia, St Basil's Cathedral, located on Red Square in Moscow, close by the Kremlin. With its eight distinct onion dome chapels encircling the main sanctuary, the cathedral is unique. In the words of Francis Carr, a masterpiece of riotous asymmetry. Although its flamboyant use of coloured tile was not added until the 17th century. It was commissioned by Metropolitan Macarius to glorify Tsardom and Russian military success, as each chapel was dedicated to a saint whose feast day coincided with an important victory over the infidel. It is a matter of conjecture how much the design of St Basil's Cathedral was influenced by the mosques of Kazan. Whilst the city of Kazan was plundered after its capture and its citizens murdered, the Russian army deliberately tried to destroy all symbols of Islam. Most famously, Kazan's chief imam, Khalil Sharif, and his numerous students died while defending the city's main mosque. It is believed, though not known for sure, that the original mosque featured minarets in the form of cupolas in a traditional design of Volga, Bulgaria, which perhaps did inspire St Basil's Cathedral. To consolidate his grip on Kazan, Ivan deported most of the Muslim population from the city and brought in Russian merchants and artisans to take their place. The city was transformed into a Russian Christian centre and pressures were imposed on the Tatar population to convert to Christianity. Over the next few years, Ivan had to deal with repeated rebellions by disaffected Tatars, which he suppressed ruthlessly. Devlet Jirai, the Khan of Crimea, was understandably agitated and summoned his forces to try and reverse Moscow's victory. In the year 1555, three years after the siege of Kazan, he launched a major invasion into the territory of Muscovy, timed to coincide with an attack by the Khan of Astrakhan. Supported by Turkish Janissaries and artillery, the armies of Astrakhan invaded from the southeast along the Volga. The Tatar forces nearly defeated the Russians, but in the end were repelled. The Russians counter-attacked against Astrakhan, sending an army down the Volga. Perhaps to their surprise, they found the Khanate virtually defenceless. The Khan fled to Azov, and the city quickly capitulated and fell into the hands of the Russians. Within the space of two years, Ivan IV had achieved the great feat of pushing forward Muscovy's southwest frontier hundreds of miles as far as the Caspian Sea and capturing the entire length of the great trade route that was the Volga River. The capture of the two Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan by Russia had profound consequences for the steppe region and beyond. To quote Geoffrey Husking, Quote, a historic turning point which fundamentally and permanently altered the balance of power on the Eurasian steppe. End quote. 
Muscovy was certainly no longer just another principality of Eastern Europe, but was transformed into a multi-national empire. The ruler of highly organised communities with cultural traditions radically different from her own. After Kazan's subordination, the Khan of Siberia agreed to start paying an annual tribute to Moscow. Although the Muscovite government made no immediate attempt to expand further eastwards, it did encourage private entrepreneurial families to make more use of routes across the Ural Mountains to the far northeast, which had previously been blocked by Kazan. The conquest of Kazan thus opened the way for Russia to beyond the Urals, deep into Siberia and ultimately all the way to the shores of the Pacific. In broader terms, according to Robert O'Crumney, the events, quote, marked an important turning point in the ancient struggle between the agriculturalist and the nomad, between the peoples of the forest and the steppe. Now the agricultural way of life was advancing, and in time Russian peasants would conquer the grasslands with their ploughs. However, the process of incorporating the vast steppe lands around and beyond the Volga would take far longer than the conquest of the cities of Kazan and Astrakhan. Matthew Romaniello, in his book, the elusive empire, Kazan and the creation of Russia, 1552 to 1671, describes how the process of building even the rudimentary structures of control over the new territory took a very long time. Quote, what began as a military defeat of one city in 1552 slowly grew into the management of an ever-enlarging frontier, a true empire worthy of the name, but more than a century after the state claimed it. End quote. In this process, the Russians were fortunate in not having to contend with another powerful rival in the region. The Ottoman Turks had suddenly become aware that their interests were coming under threat from the rising power of Russia to the north, sparking centuries of bitter rivalry between these two great empires. In the short term, the Sultans, though, were still more focused on the Mediterranean, Eastern Europe and the Middle East. For Ivan IV and his government, the question was where they would focus their attention next, either to the south, to Crimea, or to the northwest, to the Baltic. They chose the latter, but that would be the subject of a future podcast. As always, it would be great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, or the blog, www.historyeurope.net, or Twitter, at HistoryEuropeKB, or you can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net In the next set of episodes, I will be talking about one of the greatest naval battles in history, the Battle of Lepanto of 1571, a struggle between Christianity and the Ottoman Turks. Thank you for listening to History of Europe, Key Battles. Until next time, all the best and goodbye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.